Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And Father, we just humbly ask for the help of your Holy Spirit, now as we continue in our worship by opening the word of God, believing that you are a God who speaks and that this is the way, Lord, in so many times, the foremost way we hear your voice is through your word, the truth of it and the authority of it. So please prepare us and we ask that it would not be the wise or persuasive words of a man we would hear this morning, but your spirit and power that is communicating directly to each and every one of our hearts. So speak to us now by your spirit and bless your word we ask together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, could it be possible that you are somewhat deceived? And I think you could emphasize different words in that. Could it be possible that you, are the one who's somewhat deceived. Could it be possible that you are the one who is perhaps thinking that you're correct and maybe you're not correct? The word deceived, when you look at it, is defined in this way, to believe something that is not true. It's defined as a mistaken idea about a matter or even a mistaken idea about oneself. It even at times can be used to describe failing to recognize, accept, or admit that we ourselves are wrong in our own perspective. And look, there are many areas I think we'd agree that it's important to make sure that we're not deceived in regards to those things. But I can't think of any area where it is the most important of all, certainly, that we not be deceived regarding things like our eternal destiny, and our own spiritual condition. If there's anything we don't want to be deceived about, it's where our soul is going to end up for all eternity, or even the condition that we ourselves are in currently spiritually. And that's what our text is addressing, making sure that we are not deceived spiritually. Remember, the Corinthian church, as we've seen, has had some real struggles with compromise amongst themselves as a church. And as we talked about, they've embraced, unfortunately, a lot of the ideals of the world outside of the church and brought a lot of patterns to the world's living into the church. And this was misguiding people spiritually. And more than that, it was weakening the spiritual strength of the church. And Paul's been trying to speak in this letter to combat some of that error. He's in a very corrective tone, been addressing a lot of things for the sake of the health of the Christians and the church as a whole to try and use truth to correct their error. And we see him doing this once again, I believe, in these verses in front of us this morning, cautioning against being deceived specifically. In fact, he flat out says it in verse uh, nine there, do not be 
deceived. And so a few things I want to draw your attention to, I think we see in these verses, that God does not want us to be deceived in regards to. The first thing that is very obvious to me in verses 9 and 10 is that God does not want anyone to be deceived regarding their true spiritual condition or their eternal destiny. Let me say that again. God does not want anyone to be deceived regarding their true spiritual condition or their eternal destiny. He clearly warns here in verses 9 and 10 that not all people are going to inherit, we might say, enter into or experience the kingdom of God. Now, that is hard for some people even to swallow initially because everybody just wants to believe that when they die, you just go to the good place. And that just tends to be an attitude that we all want to have that, hey, you know, whether we believe spiritual things, trust in God, whether we live like the devil or whatever, when somebody dies, my my loved one, they're in a better place or I know I'm going to a better place. Well, listen, God, because he loves us, speaks truth to us. And God clearly declares as the authority on that matter that not all people are going to, sadly, it breaks the heart of God, but that not all people are going to inherit enter into the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God in its most generic and simple understanding for us just speaks of that glorious, spiritual, eternal realm in the very presence of God, where God's rulership as king is honored, where God's servants, those who have followed him and served him, are there worshiping him now in the eternal dimension and serving him. To us, it speaks of that paradise experience of heaven or eternal life together with God. We see terms used synonymously, interchangeably in the Bible, heaven, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Look, this refers to being in the very presence of God, free from all the suffering and the sorrow that we deal with now because of the existence of sin in this world and Satan's influence on this world. And being in the kingdom of God just speaks of being together with God in the eternal dimension. Jesus himself spoke to us repeatedly in the gospels about entering into the kingdom of God, about seeing, experiencing the kingdom of God. And here we are told, take note in verse nine, because it shows up in verse nine and 10, We're told that the kingdom of God is something that we inherit. You notice two times if you look at verse 9 and then again in verse 10, the phrase repeats itself, inherit the kingdom of God, indicating the kingdom of God is an inheritance. Now, important to think about what's an inheritance or how do you inherit something? How do you enter into an inheritance? Well, an inheritance is, is something that's graciously provided for you as a gift, right? By someone who loves you. And it's something that is then given to you or something that you one day experience and receive. And it's the result of a degree of relationship that you have with the person who is giving to you freely this inheritance. You don't earn an inheritance. You freely receive an inheritance because of relationship that you share with a particular person. So the relationship you possess with that person is what one day allows you to then experience that inheritance or to inherit what they have prepared or promised for you. Well, look, 
in a spiritual sense, the Bible uses that terminology. We inherit the kingdom of God. We don't earn our way into the kingdom of God by religious routines or rituals or you know, reaching a certain status by doing certain things. We inherit the kingdom of God. So entering the kingdom of God or eternal life, entering into heaven or our father's house is one day experienced as a spiritual inheritance. Listen, for those who are in right relationship with God. To those who are in a genuine, real, right relationship with God as their heavenly father, they will be the ones who inherit the kingdom of God from ourself, God our father. John chapter 3, Jesus said this, in order for a person to enter the kingdom of God, he said, you must listen, be born again. Jesus said that. I didn't say that. Jesus, who is the son of of God the Father, who's already been in the the presence of God, Jesus said, in order to enter the kingdom of God or see it, you must be born again. You have to experience at some day or moment a spiritual birth at some point in this life. The only way you are now experiencing this earthly life, right, is because you had an earthly birth. None of you got dropped off by a stork, just in case you missed that in science class. You were born. That was how your life began. Your physical life began through a birth process. It only happens one way. Well, God just says in the same way you have to be born to experience fleshly physical life, God says you have to at some point have a spiritual birth to experience truly spiritual life, to be prepared for the kingdom of God and to experience eternal and spiritual life. Again, you can go stand in a garage for the next three days or the next three years. You could stand in that garage every Wednesday night and every Sunday morning. You won't turn into a car. It doesn't happen, right? Well, in the same way, you can sit in a church, you can read the Bible, you can pray prayers, you could have attended every religious class at some point in your life. That doesn't make you a child. You have to have a spiritual birth. That has to transpire. Jesus himself said that. Peter, writing to Christians who had embraced Christ as Savior and Lord, said this. Praise be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given to us, listen to the term, new birth. Into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade And this inheritance is kept or reserved in heaven for you. So notice again the terms together. The inheritance of heaven with having experienced new birth, a spiritual birth at some point. Having had an encounter with Christ is how we then enter God's family. Being spiritually, if you would, married to Jesus makes you now part of the family of God. God becomes your heavenly father at that point, and you're then brought into the inheritance. So true and sincere relationship with God is what guarantees experiencing the inheritance of the kingdom of God. It is not for everyone who has, listened been created by God. Have we all been created by God? Yes, The Bible distinctively makes a difference between those who've just been created by God and those who have now become a child of God spiritually because a spiritual birth has happened at some point in their life. That is something we all must experience because our sin as people separates us from God and we don't begin life with a spiritual relationship with God as much as we want to believe that. 
The Bible teaches the exact opposite of that. So if true relationship with God is what guarantees our eternal inheritance, wouldn't you agree the best question to ask then is, how do you make sure you are in the family of God? Because that's not something you want to be deceived about. That's something that you want to be mistaken about. Well, the way we enter into a relationship with God, as we've been saying, is through relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. That's what the scripture teaches from cover to cover. Jesus said in John chapter three, for God so loved this whole world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes on him, Jesus, will not perish but have everlasting life. And he said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him, through Jesus, might be saved, indicating we have to be saved. You need to be saved from something. What we need to be saved from is our sin, because the Bible teaches that there's no difference. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We may think, well, I'm better than this person. I'm better than that person. Right. But the bottom line is the standard of heaven's perfection and righteousness is a standard none of us meet. We are born sinful by nature. We just prove it as we live out our lives. That's why we're always drawn towards doing what's wrong. And we sin in thoughts and words and deeds. And we all miss what it requires to enter into the perfection of heaven, which makes us guilty. Listen, we have law enforcement officers who are a part of our church who have been. If you said to them, look, can I just break one law but still not be a lawbreaker? No, you break one law, you're a lawbreaker. So you can commit 20 violations of the law. You can commit one violation of the law. You're still a lawbreaker. So we're all guilty before God. We have to be saved from that guilty, sinful condition of all of our mistakes throughout our life. And that happens by being saved through the person of Jesus Christ, the Savior. Because the Bible says that God in his love demonstrated his love that Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus came as a man. He lived the sinless life that I can't live and you can't live as a mediator on our behalf satisfied the righteous requirement of heaven for me and for you because we can't live that way. So he satisfied what was necessary for humanity, living as a man sinlessly. And then he then allowed himself to be punished for all of our sin and guilt as he died on the cross in our place, taking our punishment for our sin so that we don't have to take that punishment. And having died, then rose again, defeats the power of death for us. And now as the risen living Savior, the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. The Bible says the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So it's a free gift. That's why Jesus could declare this. Jesus said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way to have a relationship with God is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, to come to him as Savior, to embrace him as Savior, and to follow him as Lord. And that's why the Bible says, whoever receives him, God gives the right to become a child of God. But notice that term, receives him. Not to say, oh, I believe Jesus existed. Oh, very big difference. I believe Abraham Lincoln existed, but I don't know Abraham Lincoln in a relationship. Be very careful. Oh, I'm a Christian. I believe Jesus did that. I believe, well, mental assent is one thing. Have you had an experience with Jesus Christ? There's a vast difference. 
Have you received the person of the risen living Savior, come to him as a broken, humble, guilty sinner and asked him to save you and take over and be Lord of your life? It's receiving the person of Jesus, entering into a relationship with Jesus. My relationship with my wife is vastly different than it is with Abraham Lincoln. I believe they're both real people but I have a relationship with my wife. It's vastly different. Well, look, when someone has had a spiritual encounter with Jesus, the Holy Spirit's power enters in their life and it brings change to their way of life and they begin to live righteously to please God. Now, so important is being sure of our spiritual condition. That to me is why he says in verse nine, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And look what he says, do not be deceived. The Holy Spirit prompts Paul to say in regards to our eternal destiny, don't allow yourself, please don't allow yourself, he says, to be spiritually deceived that your soul is okay if you're not in right relationship with God. Don't allow yourself to believe something that's not true despite how you may feel or people may tell you otherwise. Sometimes, look, people contradict God and his word just to accommodate their desires or their preferences. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment. Look, God states here, you can detect those who are in right relationship with me, God would say. You can detect those in right relationship with me or those not in right relationship with me by how a person lives in their life practice. The fruit of that outward living is an indication of their inward nature. That's why he says in verse nine, do you not know? And he's saying, you know this. Your conscious innately tends to tell you this. Do you not know? He says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now that term, the unrighteous, speaks of those who are not in right relationship with God. They don't have a righteous standing, nor do they live in a righteous way because they're not living in a right relationship with God. The reason is that they're still ruling their own lives and therefore they're still serving their own selfish and sinful desires rather than serving God's purpose. So they continue in the lifestyles that they do. And it's almost as if, as I said, you can tell in verse nine, it's almost like the Holy Spirit is saying, when he says, do you not know? It's almost like, come on, you know this. If you really were to be honest with yourself, because God's given us all conscience. And he's saying, if you really were to be honest, you know your conscience bears witness that those who live unrighteously in sinful lifestyles are not going to heaven. They're not. They're not going to, they're not in right relationship with God. The way they live indicates it. And our conscience testifies to that reality. So he's saying, look, don't be deceived. If you're someone who's continually living in rebellion to God and his ways, but yet you're still saying to pacify your own conscience, oh, I'm in right relationship with God. I know God. He's saying, look, come on, you're lying to yourself. Don't lie to yourself about that. It's too important. Or if you're someone who doesn't want to seem, again, critical or judgmental. And, and so you say, well, God's okay now with certain practices of sin that for all of human history, the word of God has said are wrong. But now we want to say, well, I mean, I mean God's changing. He's progressive. We want to make, God wants to make everybody feel comfortable now. He's saying, look, don't deceive people. Don't, don't do that to others. He says, look, he goes on for emphasis. He says, do not be deceived. Look at the second part of verse 9. He says, neither, now he gets very explicit, 
fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit inherit the kingdom of God. Again, notice emphasis is made warning certain people living in certain sinful practices that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. You can tell here God in verse 9 and 10 is striving for clarity. That's because of his love. He's striving for clarity. Now, verses 9 and 10 here, understand, are not referring to those who have stumbled and had a failure in this area. That's not what this is referring to. When you look at the passage in context, in fact, he's going to say in the next verse, look, some of those things are what you used to be. So he, he's not here referring to those who at some point got drunk. Oh, you got drunk one time, that's it. You're not going to the kingdom of God anymore. You lose your salvation or uh, you, know, you, you fell into sexual sin at one point in your life and made a mistake or a bad decision. Well, that's it. You've just lost your inheritance. God wrote you out of your spirit. That's not what the Bible's teaching here. What he's speaking here of those who can live in a regular practice of these sins or others, I don't think the list is exhaustive myself, I think is an example. He's saying those who can live in a regular practice of these sins and routinely in an ongoing way live that way without any real change, but may still claim they're in a right relationship with God, or maybe they still sit in a church, yet they can live in a practice of continual sinful behavior and direct rebellion to God's word and everything that we know God says. He says, look, these are the people who are deceived regarding their spiritual condition and their eternal destiny. He mentions a clear list here in verses 9 and 10 of sins and sinful lifestyles. Now, again, I don't think, as I said, the list is exhaustive. I really don't. I believe it's a clear illustration, but some of the things he illustrates apparently were some obvious things. For example, those who live in a constant practice of fornication, and fornication is a biblical term that speaks of any form of sexual sin outside of God's design for a biological male and biological female in a covenant relationship in marriage. That any type of sexual activity, sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend, your fiance, sexual activity in any form or fashion that is outside of the design of the marriage relationship and that boundary between a husband and a wife. He says if someone's living in that continual practice and thinking they're in right relationship with God, he's saying they're deceiving themselves. They're deceiving themselves. He mentions idolaters, those continually serving something or someone else with greater devotion than God. He mentions adulterers, that is those who enter into an adulterous relationship and continue to live in that adulterous relationship. And again, what is adultery? It's sexual activity with someone other than the person that you are married to. Or it is sexual relationship with someone who is married to another person. Either way. He mentions as well, major hot button, but yet God's word is honest in regards to all sin equally. He mentions as well, nor homosexuals nor sodomites. And that is a clear reference to sexual activity with someone of your same sex. And it's interesting that here in the uh, text that the Holy Spirit chooses to use two separate distinct Greek words, homosexual and sodomite, both to refer to sexual sin with someone of your 
same sex. They're two different words. What's interesting is the word homosexual is the Greek term that refers to the passive partner who plays more of the feminine role in the homosexual relationship. The term sodomite that's used there in the Greek refers to the person in the homosexual relationship who plays more of the masculine role and functions more as the aggressor in the male relationship and in the sexual act. Now, to me, that's very interesting because if you would just take notice of observation alone, whenever you see a, a couple living in a practice of homosexuality, whether it is two females or it is two males, take notice how more often than not you tend to still notice one is more of the feminine partner and the other is more of the masculine partner. And whether it be with females, where one female is more of the, you could tell the more male role, and the other is more of the feminine role, or with men. And one man is more effeminate, and the other man is more masculine. To me, that has always been almost like a clear indication in their confusion in their own conscience that male-female go together. Because one's playing a masculine role, and one's playing a feminine role. It's almost as if conscience alone is testifying in the midst of their sad confusion of this very reality of what proper design is as male and female and not two females or two males. And the very way that they live that out. Look, despite what culture is now saying and despite what the Pope is now saying, God's word has and always will declare that a person cannot live in a practice of homosexual living and be in right relationship with God at the same time. The Bible is very clear that you cannot be a Christian and a practicing homosexual. I'm not saying someone who doesn't struggle with temptation and tendencies. That's a different thing because we all struggle with tendencies and temptations towards different types of sin. It's different than practicing. And the Bible is very evident. Can't be a Christian and a practicing homosexual. He also mentions, again, many other things in this list. Thieves, those who are continually stealing from others and able to keep doing that, ripping people off. Oh, I'm a Christian, but yet they have this chronic lifestyle of stealing and robbing and ripping people off. He's saying that person is not in a relationship with God. You couldn't do that in your conscience. If you had the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, nor covetous, greedy, consumed with lustful material desires driven by money, drunkards, those abusing alcohol and substances characterized by an addictive lifestyle, living chronically as a drunk or a drug addict, nor revilers, those constantly harming and hurting other people, abusive living in an abusive way, nor extortioners, manipulating, taking advantage. He's saying, look, those who can repeatedly live in these ongoing practices, as I said, or any other sinful practice, because I don't think the list is exhaustive. You're free to disagree. <laughs> but I don't think God would distinctly say, oh, only this list here, but these other sins you could. It's an indication of an illustration. God is saying, do not be deceived. These people who live in these practices are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. They're not in right relationship with God. Their life practice indicates something is functionally wrong spiritually. Galatians 5 reiterates it this way. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, 
idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, jealousy, discord. Now we're adding to the list. Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. He says, and I warn you, as I did before, that those who listen practice such things. Other translations say those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. God's word strongly cautions that if a person can live in ongoing practice of sin, they should be very, very careful they are not deceived regarding their true spiritual condition. And the reason is 2 Corinthians 5 declares, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what? He's a new creation. Old things pass away. And all things become new. See, encountering Jesus brings powerful life change by the work of the Holy Spirit transforming us. That is why, track with me, that is why after speaking about those sinful practices in verse 9 and 10, drunkards, adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals, he then says in verse 11, look at it, and such were some of you. So he mentions this list of all these sinful practices and lifestyles. And then he says, and such were some of you there in the Corinthian church. This is what some of you used to be, Paul's saying, before Christ saved you, before Jesus delivered you, before the Holy Spirit came into your life and transformed you, before the Holy Spirit set you free. Think about it. In the church in Corinth, there's an open admission right in the letter. In the church in Corinth, There were now Christians who at one time were major fornicators. There were people in the church at Corinth that at one time in their past were adulterers. At one time in the past, there were people in the church at Corinth that used to be drunkards, that used to be drug addicts, people who used to be thieves, ripping people off, idolaters, people who at one point were apparently in the church of Corinth practicing homosexuals who were now different, who were delivered and living in a different way. And I love this testament in the word of God here because quite honestly, it is a testament to the power of Christ to transform people by the work of his spirit. People who lived in these sinful practices were delivered and changed people. They were no longer living like that anymore. He says, that's what you used to be. That's what some of you guys once were, he's reminded them. And now Jesus has changed you. The Holy Spirit makes people different than they once were. Look, folks, this is the biblical gospel, the biblical gospel, that Christ sets people free. He doesn't just come into their life and, and you know, add a few good things. No, Jesus changes people. He's a savior, a deliverer, a transformer. You can encounter Jesus Christ and not continue to experience change and transformation in your life. Because that's what Jesus does. He sets people free. Notice he says there's such were some of you. And also, take this in mind, he doesn't say such are some of you. Now, to me, I find that helpful because... What the Bible's saying here to those who were Christians in the church in Corinth who had those kind of pasts as practices is, is, look, you're not still the same person. Now, I think this is very important and helpful. He's saying, look, you're not just a forgiven drunk who's still a drunk, but you're just a forgiven drunk who hasn't 
how to drink in a few months or a few years. He's saying, look, you're not just a forgiven homosexual or a forgiven adulterer who just hasn't done it in a while, but, but that's what you still are. He's saying, no, not such are some of you still, but you're just now forgiven. He's saying, this is what you were. In other words, what does the word were mean? The word were means it's something you used to be, but you're not anymore. It's what you were. It's not what you are. It's what you were at one point in time, but when Jesus saved you, your identity changed. Your status changed. That's what you were. It's not what you are anymore. Don't let your, listen, don't let your mind deceive you. Do not be deceived, the passage says. Do not be deceived. Don't let your mind deceive you. You are not a drunk and a drug addict. That's what you were. It's not what you are anymore. You're not still a someone who has the potential to be a thief or homosexual. You, look, that's what you were. That's what you were. That's not who you are anymore. You're not someone who is still a fornicator or an adulterer. The power of Christ's salvation has made you a different person. Your status has changed. Your identity has changed. You are brand new in Christ through the power of his victory. So don't be deceived to living in condemnation regarding your old identity. Cut it out. That's not what you are anymore. It's what you were. People may want to label you that way. Society may want to label you that way. I apologize. Even some Christians may want to look at you with a stink eye because that's your old past. That's not the way God looks at you. God looks at you and says, that's not what you are. It's what you were until the blood of my son came into your life until the power of my Holy Spirit transformed who you are. And this is why we can't be deceived into thinking this as well, folks, is because if you think you are still an old slave to that thing that you were at one time, and you think you're still kind of an old slave to it, you're just a forgiven person like that now. I tell you this, you may be deceived in the one day justly thinking that you therefore can't help going back to that old lifestyle. Because I just have a propensity to that particular sin because it's what, I, it's what I still am. No, it is what you were. That old person is dead. They don't exist anymore. In God's sight, that life is dead. It is done with. It is buried. It's not what you still are. If you believe that, you're going to give yourself an excuse one day to go back to that and say, well, it's just what I still am. No, it's what you were. Don't ever believe what your flesh tells you, what people tell you. Believe what God says of you. It's what you were. You're different. You're new. It's what you at one point were. But look what he says, verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified by the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. He says you were washed, cleansed from all the guilt of what that once was in your life by the blood of Christ. Your record is fully cleared. So don't let the guilt and shame and condemnation be something that impacts you any longer. That guilt has been removed. Your shame has been taken away. Your record is fully cleared from God's viewpoint. You were washed in the blood of Jesus. He's given you a brand new status in Christ. You're a brand new person. 
He says, and such were some of you, but you were also sanctified. That word means to be set apart for a new life to be lived in the power of Christ's rulership. You've been given a whole new life purpose. Jesus said that if the son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Despite your past, you have a high calling now to live as a servant of Christ, not as a slave to that old way. Jesus set you free. You were sanctified, and you've got a whole brand new purpose to live the remainder of your human existence. He thirdly says as well, such were some of you. You were washed, sanctified, and then he says, and also you were justified in the name of the Lord. The word justified biblically means to be declared righteous in the sight of God judicially. It's when God takes a guilty sinner and he is judged, declares them not just forgiven and pardoned, but he declares them righteous from a judicial standpoint because they've received the righteousness of his son now. And look, this is how God views you as a Christian if you've come into a relationship with Christ. You don't have to be fearful of your dark past and all your failures and regrets or the shame attached to that you can approach God's throne with full confidence of complete acceptance of you because you've been justified in God's sight. You've been made righteous. Now, can I promise you that others are going to accept you in connection to your sinful past? I can't promise you that because human beings are human beings. And people may struggle and they may wrestle. And I can't assure you that your sinful past or your failures may or may not affect other people's reception of you. But I can tell you this on the authority of God's word. You have full acceptance of God Almighty. And Romans 8 says, if God is for you, who can be against you? Or maybe you say, who cares? Who cares who's against you? God's for you. Hebrews 4 assures this, let us approach God's throne with grace, with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Look, God has given you full acceptance to come to him. You can always come to him with his power and his love and his acceptance to help you as you continue to navigate your new life in Christ. And this has been done by the glorious work. Notice, he says, by the spirit of God. That's why it's reliable, because it happened as a work of the spirit. And I think God puts these things together with these verses here so that as a genuine believer in Christ, we would never allow ourselves to be deceived by what our feelings are about our past or what our thoughts may be about ourselves and our own struggles with our self-confidence, but that we would believe the truth of God's word that no matter what we once were, he says, that's what you were, but now you're washed. You're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God who is working in your life. Thirdly and finally, notice with me in verse 12, God does also want us to be deceived regarding thinking participating in certain practices are good or okay when maybe doing such things are honestly utterly bad. Let me say that again. God doesn't want us to be deceived thinking certain practices are good or okay when maybe they may honestly be utterly bad for us personally. Look what he says in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now he's talking to Christians here from verse 11 who have been washed and sanctified and justified. And as Christians, we've been saved by the grace of God in Christ's work. We're not under the law. 
We've been saved by grace. And so we now live governed by grace, not ruled by the domination of the Mosaic law. So the way that a child of God lives is we are ruled by our love for the Lord, being directed by the power of the Holy Spirit from within us, governing our heart, not from moral religious restraints, rules of the Mosaic law, telling us how to live in a strict adherence. We're ruled by the Holy Spirit, which gives us freedom to listen to the Spirit regarding what is right and what is wrong. It's quite honestly a much better way to be able to live. We live under grace. That's what Paul means when he says two times in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, saying there are many things that I have the right and the freedom to do in Christ. I have the allowance in Christ and under grace to have permission to do as I want. I am free to do many things if I want to participate in them. However, listen, just because I can do something does not always mean I should do something. Let me say that again in case it wasn't hurt. Just because I can do something does not always mean I should do something. We have to be careful. Galatians 5 says this, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only don't use your liberty as an opportunity for indulging the flesh. The idea is using freedom from the law to excuse indulgences in our sinful nature from time to time. Just because something is not a direct violation of the word of God does not necessarily mean that just because I have the freedom or allowance to do it, that I should participate and do it. We have to use wisdom. Just because I have the spiritual right to do something doesn't mean that it's right for me to do it. I may have the right to do it, but it may not be right for me, however, to do it. That's why he says, yes, everything is lawful, permissible, allowable. But he says, look what he says, verse 12, not all things, however, are helpful for me. Certain things that we can do may not be helpful to us spiritually nor personally. They may actually hold us back spiritually or they may hinder our lives personally. We shouldn't just listen, folks. We shouldn't just be saying, can I do this? Am I allowed to do this? But we should be saying, would it be helpful if I do this? Is it going to help my spiritual life? Is it going to be helpful to my role as a husband? Is it going to be helpful to my role as a wife? Is it going to be helpful to my job as a parent? You know, again, is doing this beneficial for me? Those are the kind of questions we should be asking. Yes, I can do a whole lot of things, but is it going to help me? Or may it actually hinder me? Could it maybe be something that becomes an encumbrance or a hindrance to my walk with the Lord or to my role? Again, maybe it's some activity. We're not talking about grossly sinful things that clearly violate the scripture here. We're talking about these allowances, these liberties that we have, these permissible things. Could be some activity. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a recreational pursuit or a personal indulgence. Maybe it's what I watch. Maybe it's what I listen to. Maybe it's even a relationship. And all those things may be permissible. I have the right, but I should say, but is watching that helpful? You know, is, is the, I have the permissible opportunity to be in a relationship with this person, but is that going to be helpful to me to be in a relationship with this person? Is it going to help my spiritual life? 
Or is it maybe going to hinder my spiritual life? Maybe I can do some habit or recreational pursuit. And nothing wrong with it in and of itself, but is it helping you spiritually? Or is it beginning to hinder you spiritually? That's the kind of questions we want to ask. Is this going to help my spiritual life? Think about it. Dedicated athletes ask themselves this all the time, don't they? Think about people who are professionals in their sport or Olympic training athletes. They all the time evaluate things in that way. They, they choose to give up certain things because, you know, that's not going to help me be a champion. Now, if people do that for sports or a gold medal or something, how much more should we do that kind of thing in asking ourselves that question as Christians? Is this helpful to my spiritual life? If not, then, then maybe I shouldn't participate in it any longer. Or maybe I should choose not to do that because it wouldn't help me personally in who I am as a Christian. And again, I think this becomes something individually we got to sort out. He also says as well, verse 12, all things are permissible, allowable, lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any. So again, I can be allowed to partake of something. However, I need to use wisdom and stewardship because I don't want to accidentally become a prisoner to it then taking control over my life. Maybe something that I do, then the next thing I know, it's permissible, but then all of a sudden, now it starts to control my life. It starts to enslave me. I'll give you a hot button. I'm sure I'll get one or two emails on this. The Bible doesn't say Christians can't drink alcohol. You are free in Christ and free biblically if you want to partake of alcohol. But I think if you're going to partake of alcohol and you want to do it recreationally, you might want to take into consideration, is it lawful? Yeah, but what if you're brought under the power of it? What if all of a sudden your recreational fun participation in drinking becomes something where you ultimately start to lose control with drinking alcohol? I can bring before you tons of people who are drunks and drug addicts, and I guarantee you not one of them ever woke up one day and said, you know, I think I want to be a drug addict. I really do. I think it'd be great to be a drug addict. It's not how it happened. It happened incrementally happen gradually there are a lot of things again a relationship a job pursuit again anything watching certain things that we can do and we have the freedom to do it but be very careful if you do it what if it ultimately takes control and then it actually controls you and then you become enslaved to it and then it has power over your life and begins to ruin your life just because you wanted to say it's my freedom man i got i got liberties bro be careful. I just caution you. Be, this verse is such a key, folks, to living by grace, but being very wise to how you live out your Christian life. Is it helpful or isn't it helpful? Is it something that I can be brought under the power of? If it is, maybe I should be careful in regards to my judgment, whether I participate or partake. You know, maybe even this morning, Something you started doing just periodically, now it's dominating your life. Now it's controlling your life. Today, if you need to make a course correction, if something you're involved in, maybe it's not grossly wrong, but if it's not helpful, or if God forbid worse, it's beginning to gain power over your life, let me encourage you, put an end to it before bigger problems arise. Would you stand together with me and let's pray.